Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined as always by Chris Bougay. Hey, Chris. Hey, Rachel. What's going on? Not much. What do we? What do you got for me this week? Well, Rachel, I think years ago when we first started this podcast, I know a a principle of mine that I think we share is that this podcast would not just be informative, but it would also be fun, right? There'd be a level of edutainment to our to our content so that people weren't didn't never feel like it was taking their medicine. Oh, I gotta listen to the Talking with Tech podcast. No, like, oh my gosh, it's fun. Let's listen to the Talking with Tech podcast. Let's see what kind of wackiness, still respectful wackiness, but but still, you know, some sort of fun way to learn new content. So with that in mind, you know, you and I have to pull pranks on each other over the years. Um, but then we also try and do some fun things. And I think this one is one of those fun, little weird, wacky things that um, might be really useful, but also in a very fun way. All right. I'm super excited. You always have these fun things in store. I never know what this roller coaster ride is going to be like, but like I'm buckling in. I'm ready. So a few days ago, we were working on a slide deck together and I sent you a little comment in Google Slides that said, Okay, open this up and uh, go to full screen and then arrow through the next five slides. And if you don't laugh out loud on slide five, then I owe you a beverage the next time we get together, right? And so tell me what happened on your end. So on my end, I was like, what is this scavenger hunt I'm going on right now? And indeed, I did laugh out loud when I got to slide number five of our presentation. Yeah, so what I embedded was this little project I have been working on, uh, which is created creating animated GIFs of myself. <laughs> so uh, the one that you happen to see, in fact, the vast majority that I've created so far were, were a project I was working on with my daughter, Maggie. And the way that happened is we were, you remember the Disney episodes? Well, we were standing in line at Disney killing time. And I was like, I want to make animated gifts of myself. I had made one a long time ago of me tapping my watch. And now I send it to the kids all the time when, you know, I'm waiting to pick them up and I'll just send that gift, you know, uh, or whatever, you know, Hey, we're all in the car waiting for you. Put your stuff on, get out here. I send that gift. So I said, what if we created more of these and I could slide these into presentations occasionally, but then there's some elements here. Like I want to make sure the background is removed. So it's slick, you know, you don't see some sort of, you know, line full of people in Disney. Right. So Maggie and I made a bunch of animated gifts, meaning she, she recorded these little videos on her phone. And then I later on turned them into animated gifts. If you will uh, uh, give me a second here, we will take the, the video about to show so you can see it, but I'm going to show you a collage of the animated gifts. So this is really a visual piece on an audio podcast, but I got to show you just so you can see what it looks like. Um, so here we go. I'm going to share my screen. And uh, you can see here, Rachel, that I'm logged into the website Giphy, G-I-P-H-Y, G-I-P-H-Y.com. Now, you and I have talked about using GIFs for a long time. What are some ways you use GIFs in your practice? I'm obsessed with GIFs. I feel like I use them for sure weekly, but almost daily. And there's so many different ways to use them. What I love about them the most is that they're very novel and they're super fun. So, you know, if I'm in a classroom and I'm watching a teacher talk about the weather, right? You know, that's a very common thing we see, especially in preschool classrooms. It's like, what's the weather today? It's like, we can take anything that feels kind of boring and we could 
type something into Giphy and find some type of GIF. Um, so speaking about the weather, it's like, okay, I'm observing this teacher. Some of the ideas I have is like, hey, when we're talking about it raining, let's like type that into Giphy and get like a torrential downpour or someone being, you know, having five umbrellas that they're holding, like something that's really interesting and fun and novel. Um, and so I feel like there's so, I mean, that's just one way I use it, but there's a ton of ways to use this. When you have a student with very limited interest, Chris, Chris has just typed in rain on Giphy and I'm now looking at all the fun different ways that we can, again, demonstrate this, get kids talking, get kids laughing, get kids engaged. One of the other things I was going to share is if you have students with limited interests, which many of our students, it feels like it's really hard to get them motivated, but they have one specific interest or curiosity, you can really do a deep dive on Giphy. So like I have a student who is really into Angry Birds. So <laughs> you were trying, you, you guessed it. You were like, I have a student. I do have also have a student that's really into ceiling fans. Um, but Angry Birds is, you know, this student's favorite thing. And so there's so many different gifts when you type in angry birds and you can see all of the different communication opportunities there. And so it's such a great resource. So many different ways to kind of create opportunities for language. And especially when we're getting our kids to kind of think outside of just nouns, um, getting them to use verbs and all different types of uh, core language. Gifts are just a really easy, fun way to do it. Yeah, you said it. I mean, you could type in a core vocabulary word and see how it's expressed through uh, through a GIF. Uh, one little side note here is that um, we probably wouldn't go to Giphy, and I bet you a lot of schools it's blocked, and, and search because you might find something inappropriate. But I think what we're suggesting is you could type it, do that on your own, get a handful of these, and then embed them into a slide deck or something like that so that um, students can find them. And of course, there are older learners that we support that we could do it, you know, an, actor, an actual search. But if we're talking about schools, you wouldn't necessarily want to go here because occasionally you might get that inappropriate thing. But certainly by, by looking at them ahead of time. I was going to say one more thing, Chris. So yes, you're absolutely right. Sometimes the search can be really uh, dangerous. Um, so I definitely wouldn't recommend doing it in front of students. You can save those images to your phone or some type of other resource. Um, and so myself and my clinicians, my whole team has a shared GIF album um, that we can just pull up on our phone. We constantly add to it. The other thing is I have resources where we've done the legwork for you. So core language, lots of opportunities. We have slide decks that I sell on my website that have a bunch of GIFs that are super fun. So yeah, that's definitely what I rec would recommend is kind of pre-screen the GIFs so that you're able to make sure there's nothing inappropriate in there. But yeah, it's a, it's a really great tool. Now, another principle that we've talked about on this podcast, and I take it to heart, and I think everybody should take this to heart, is that occasionally when you go to try and find a resource and you can't find a particular resource, like maybe there are the core vocabulary word you're searching for or that, uh, that, that, that unique concept that you're going to search for is not there, then you know what that means. It means it's on you to create it. The world needs you to create it because clearly it was a resource that wasn't available so that you turn that camera right around and you say, I'm going to create that. And that means you could be the one that creates an animated GIF to start filling that need. And what I'm about to show you, Rachel, is some of the animated GIFs that I made. You ready? Here we go. I'm super excited. I feel like they're going to be ridiculous. And I was correct. <laughs> 
This is so good. So if you go to giphy.com slash channel slash Christopher Bougay, we'll put that in the show notes. You should be able to see the Chris Bougay collection of animated gifts that you can take and you can pop into your presentations or whatever. Now I've just only started. I've got what, maybe 11 or 12 gifts here. Um, the original uh, time one that you could add, um, but feel free to use these open source. So with that said, what would you like to learn how I made one? Yes, definitely. Okay, it's actually, the this, this steps are pretty simple, but that said, let's wait till next time. Let's come back and spend our entire banter going through the process of how to make an animated GIF of yourself or of something, really any video you create. Um, so Rachel, tell us about the interview today. Chris, I had the pleasure of interviewing Teresa Bartolotta, and we talked all about Rett syndrome, which I don't know, you know how many of our listeners have students with Rett syndrome. Um, I've definitely worked with some students with Rett syndrome, and uh, we go into lots of details. I figured it was a really great episode to share because, um, you know, low incidence d- disabilities are sometimes challenging, and oftentimes um, we feel kind of stuck with some of those cases where there's not um, a lot of clear information, and there's some commonalities. Um, So I thought it was a really great interview and I'm really excited to share the interview that I did uh, with Teresa. Hi everyone. My name is Adriana Zabala and I am one of the daughters of Joy Zabala. My mother was a pioneer in the field of assistive technology and a tremendous advocate for ensuring that educational experiences were designed to be inclusive, equitable, and accessible. Throughout her life, my mother understood that mentorship of the next generation was essential in order to realize enduring, sustainable change. To further my mom's work, her family, friends, and colleagues created the Joy Zabala Fellowship. Inspired by my mom's passion for empowering emerging practitioners, the fellowship supports relationships between experienced professionals and those who are taking the initial steps in their journey toward building a more inclusive future. I would like to invite you to participate in supporting this work by applying to become either a mentor or a mentee. You can access the applications and learn how to participate by going to joyzabala.com. I look forward to working with you to carry on my mother's work as we endeavor together to put more joy in the world for everyone. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined today by Teresa Bartolotta. Thank you so much for coming, Teresa. I'm really excited to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me, Rachel. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Okay, so just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and all about how you got interested in Rett syndrome. Super, thank you. Um, So I am a speech language pathologist. I've been in the field for a long time. I always wanted to work with children uh, who had challenges and um, particularly found myself drawn to children with complex communication disorders such as autism, Down syndrome, and other other issues. Um, As I got older and I was working and started a family, my husband and I have two children, and our second child was born. We thought everything was fine. And when she was about one, she started to regress 
And we realized something was going on. And it was a long journey to find out really what was going on with her. Uh, but when she was 11 years old, uh, we got the appropriate diagnosis because we were able to get genetic testing done at that time. And we learned that she had Rett syndrome. Rett syndrome is a complex disorder that affects multiple systems. Um, communication is pretty significantly affected in the population and most individuals with Rett are nonverbal. So when my daughter was diagnosed and I looked for information on RET, I couldn't find much. And the information that was available was limited and it was, it was negative and it was saying things like the outcomes would be dire. And uh, there really wasn't a lot of hope for change and growth and rehabilitation. So I kind of set on a course to learn more about RET syndrome. And I knew that my daughter was communicating, not typically, but she was vocal, she could use AAC. And so I wanted to share information with the world. So I ended up doing my PhD on communication with Red Syndrome. And then over the years have worked in collaboration with a number of colleagues, had the opportunity to present uh, really um, all over the world. And now I do some consulting for the International Red Syndrome Foundation on the topic of communication. Well, it's so, I'm so excited to have you on today. It's definitely a topic area that we want to cover on this podcast. And I know there's a lot of listeners out there who perhaps have heard of, heard of Rett syndrome, but don't really understand a lot about it. So can you just share with our listeners a little bit about what you've learned? I know you have an amazing communication guidelines all uh, for individuals with Rett syndrome. So just start off by telling your listeners, like, what is Rett syndrome? Um, what characteristics does it have? Um, and then, of course, how it impacts communication? Okay, perfect. So Rett syndrome is an X-linked genetic mutation. So there is a mutation in uh, a gene called MECP2, and this gene is critical for brain development. And it's on the X chromosome. So most of the individuals who have Rett syndrome are female. Um, there are a number of males with Rett, but fewer than females. Um, and often in the males, the condition can present as more serious, more complex, because males only have one X chromosome. Um, characteristics of RET start to emerge somewhere within, say, the first year to year and a half of life. For many families, their infant is developing typically might even start to walk, start to say some words, and then somewhere before, say, 18 months, start to experience a regression. Um, so if they are talking, words are lost. If they are walking, they start to have uh, gross motor problems. Um, some children never begin to walk. Some begin to have seizures. Um, seizures are common in Rett syndrome, as are respiratory difficulties motor planning difficulties such as apraxia that affect the whole body. Uh, so it's a complex multi-system disorder uh, that usually becomes now of days becomes evident and is becoming more appropriately diagnosed uh, in younger children. Uh, there's also a characteristic hand wringing or hand clasping movement that we see in Rett syndrome. For many individuals with threat, they're unable to use their hands functionally. Again, secondary to that motor planning or apraxia problem. Uh, 
Um, so that can be a hallmark of the disorder. Uh, they also have gastrointestinal problems. Uh, some can eat by mouth, but many have to rely, say, on a G-tube uh, or other means of feeding. Uh, so it really affects most of the systems in the body. Uh, we used to think a long time ago that individuals were, with RAT were incapable of intentional communication. We thought that their lives were shortened because we thought it was a degenerative disorder. But we now know that there are many individuals with RAT syndrome living well into and through middle age and um, into their senior years uh, because they're getting good care, good nutrition, and we know so much more. And in addition, we have evidence that shows that individuals with Rett syndrome are capable of intentional communication. And the advances that have been made in AAC area have enabled individuals with Rett to really show what they know and what they can do. Um, many individuals with Rett, because they can't use their hands, find that the eye gaze modality is really the most effective modality. So we see a lot of individuals with threat using AAC access through eye gaze, and that's really been a game changer. Yeah, I mean, that technology just in general is pretty remarkable when you think about individuals who don't have motor control of most of their body, but if they have, you know, the ability to use eye tracking, it just opens up a world of communication that they might not otherwise have. Um, so it's just so cool when I like zoom out for a second of my day to day and think about how far the technology has come and how really incredible it is um, and how it just completely changes the lives of so many that otherwise wouldn't be able to access, you know, with direct selection and, and things like that. So um super excited about that. Tell me a little bit about the journey that you had with your daughter. Um, what did that look like? You know, tell me a little bit about AAC and what that journey was like. I, we have a lot of parents who listen to this podcast and it's helpful, I think, for parents who are just starting off on an AAC journey uh, to hear from other parents about what their experience was like, what they've learned, what they would have do done differently, um, things like that. Sure. So, um, and again, remembering that Lisa didn't have the correct diagnosis till she was 11. Uh, when she was young, she was diagnosed as being autistic-like. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of went with that. Um, so we did get her into early intervention. She was diagnosed before the age of two. And so um, her therapist tried lots of strategies. At that point, they were still trying to work on oral speech because she had had some words but they were incorporating sign language. When we realized that her hands were not as functional as um, they could have been, uh, she started to use some low-tech AAC in her preschool program. So she was doing um, picture communication books. Uh, we did try the PEC system a little bit, you know, where you have to pull off the pictures and hand it to your partner so that you would get some good engagement. But that was too challenging for her motor-wise. Um, Lisa is now 33 years old. So if we think back 30 years ago, the technology was so much simpler mm -hmm. um, than it is now. Uh, but she did have some simple AAC devices that had voice output. Um, like, uh, you know, a four square, she had four buttons and we put a picture on there. 
Um, so her SLPs, I have to say, were um, pretty forward thinking and trying to have her introduced to AC when she was younger. And we always worked on every modality. So we worked on pointing, we worked on vocalizing, we worked on eye gaze, and we also worked on um, AAC using direct selection. Um, as she's gotten older, we've modified what she can do. Um, my daughter's hand function is very preserved for somebody with RET. So she can point to items on an iPad. So she uses right now uh, TD Snap software on an iPad mm -hmm. and she can, um, she can swipe, she can touch. Um, she also can point and she can also pick up objects and bring them to you, which is mm -hmm. something that um, a lot of individuals with Rett syndrome really are to struggle with. Uh, she also vocalizes and um, uh, every once in a while, it sounds like she has got a couple of words and uh, she shakes her head yes and no. So we use all of those modalities um, and um, and don't neglect any. Yeah, I think that's a really important reminder, too, is that we really need to be supporting individuals with all the different ways that they can communicate with us um, and really honoring nonverbal communication and things like that. Um, however, a student decides that they want to communicate with us, we can mm -hmm. keep supporting. And um, I think that's a really important piece. I think sometimes we get so laser focused on the technology and use your system, but we know from listening to AAC users themselves, and many of them have been on this podcast, they oftentimes have multiple systems for communication, right? Multiple AAC systems. Um, in this situation, I use this. In a different situation, I use that. So um, I think that's a really important reminder. Yeah, I mean, something as simple as a yes, no cards, um, just having those available for her, um, you know, asking her yes, no questions. Uh, one modality is not better than the other. And I think, it, you know, sometimes people can become enamored of the high tech mm -hmm. and think, oh, it has all this capability, that's the best. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, I think we have to, like you said, go back to the user and look at the situations in which they find themselves mm -hmm. and what's, the, um, what's, their, what's their preferred communication modality in that particular setting and then honor that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, okay. Tell me a little bit about your communication guidelines. We kind of talked about, I feel like one of the hallmark characteristics communication wise is we have to consider potentially alternative access uh, for individuals with Rett syndrome. Um, what else should we know as speech language pathologists or educators about Rett syndrome when it comes to communication? Thank you so much. I'm really proud to, and honored to be one of the co-authors of the communication guidelines for Rett syndrome. They were published in 2020. Uh, by the International Rett Syndrome Foundation. Uh, and they came about because um, what we recognize, those of us in communication, working with people with Rett Syndrome, uh, recognized that there was very little information available to families as well as professionals on how to advanced communication in individuals with Rett syndrome. And this really was a global issue. I was at an international conference for Rett syndrome in Europe with colleagues from around the world, and we were having the same conversations. We were saying that when we worked with people with Rett syndrome, we were seeing them communicate intentionally. But when you looked in the literature, there was very little literature there that said, this is a possibility, go for AEC. 
And um, so clinicians, teachers, parents who are out in the community couldn't find information. And if they found information, a lot of it was negative and was saying that um, communication probably wasn't uh, attainable. So myself and three other colleagues, uh, two SLPs and an OT, one from Australia, one from the Netherlands, and one from Sweden, uh, we started working together with a shared goal of trying to gather information so that we could help people get the best evidence on how to advance communication in rent. And we uh, were funded, we uh, wrote a grant, we were funded by the International Rett Syndrome Foundation to develop the guidelines. And so this was a multi-year study and we actually went through about 500 pieces of literature uh, to go to find what is the best evidence, published evidence on communication in RET. And because um, it was not a lot of very high quality, rigorous experimental studies, which is not atypical in a, in a field like this because it's a rare disorder. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to do a clinical study. Um, we found lots of what we call grade literature, lots of anecdotal case study, things like that. So we put all of that together, but then we said we need to reach out to the community. So we reached out to professionals um, all over the world, as well as parents. And um, we had thousands of professionals and parents participate in surveys that um, we gave asking about communication in individuals with Rett syndrome. And our surveys were translated into multiple languages for parents. And um, we were able to have all of this information pulled together. And then we had a panel of experts um, evaluate the the statements that we wrote about communication in RET. And the result is this, the first of its kind evidence-based guidelines on how to assess and then intervene for communication to develop communication in RET. Um, So we're really proud of these guidelines. Um, It's about a hundred page workbook, essentially, or a handbook. And we've written it in a way so that the language is accessible to parents as well as professionals. And we've got some really key um, chapters. There's eight chapters in the guidelines. And we begin by talking about best practices for assessment, for intervention, and for teams working together. And we view uh, the individual with Fred syndrome as well as their family members as equal members of the team. So everybody has to work together. We also have a chapter on features of Rett syndrome because we know that for many teachers and therapists, they might have one person with Rett syndrome in their school or on their caseload. And so we can't expect them to come fully equipped with all of this information on how Rett impacts communication. So we have this in this chapter, we cover all the different features of Rett syndrome, for example, the apraxia or the motor planning problems. And we talk about how those motor planning problems impact communication. And we do that for all of the key features of Rett syndrome. So that someone can really grab this, take a look at it and say, okay, now I see why 
this person is doing what they're doing. Um, because we see individuals with Rett syndrome often have difficulties maintaining good regulation of their bodies. Mm -hmm. So they go in and out of being either overstimulated or understimulated. So we help the reader recognize what those features of under or overstimulation could look like, how to help the person get back into a regulated state, and then how to assess their communication at that time. Um, so we're really proud of that. Um, we have a section on how can you really be a good communication partner. Um, and then we talk about how to how best practices for assessment. Um, we write very strongly about non-standardized assessment, assessing in the natural environment, assessing in multiple environments, um, and interviewing you know, key significant people in that person's life. And then we start with intervention and we talk about low tech. So very basic, um, yes, no, establishing the best yes, um, all the way up to um, high tech AC and um, the possibilities of literacy. Love it. Love it. I love literacy. We talk a lot about that on this podcast and just giving access to individuals so that they have the ability to really be able to say whatever they want to say to whoever they want to say it to. Um, this resource sounds really awesome. I'm just imagining a, a parent with a newly diagnosed child with Rett syndrome listening to this podcast and then finding these communication guidelines as really a great resource to share with you know, their speech therapists and their team. Cause as you mentioned, it's a very low incidence um, that we see in our clinical practice. Even myself, I've worked, you know, I specialize in AAC and I've worked with several students with Rett syndrome, but by no means would I say a lot. Um, so it does become challenging to understand kind of what we're looking at and how that impacts the way that we treat and the way that we practice. Um, so I'm super excited that you guys came together and created that resource and I'm super excited how can people access the resource who are interested in it? Great. Um, so the resource is available on the um, uh, Rett Syndrome Foundation's website. So it's rettsyndrome.org. And I, I can give you the link um, to share with your audience. Um, but if they just look up um, rettsyndrome.org for communication professionals or communication, the guidelines will come up. And the guidelines are available um, in two formats. You can order a print copy for $10, and that's really just to cost, cover the cost of printing and mailing. Um, or you can download a PDF right from the website, again, for $10. So we really try to keep the price point low. It's, it's all money going, you know, it's all from the foundation. Um, nobody else is getting any, any money um, for it. And, um, we want to keep the price point low so that we keep it readily accessible. Um, but what we've done in addition uh, to making the guidelines available on the website is that um, we we know, you know, a hundred page book can can sometimes be a little overwhelming if you hand it to a teacher or a therapist and say, here, you know, now read this and learn all about, you know, my child. So um, what we've done is we've created a free three-part webinar series that is available on Red Syndrome's uh, uh, Foundation's website, as well as on their YouTube channel. And we have three, um, just under one hour uh, videos. And they go through, what is Red Syndrome? The first one, what are the features of Red Syndrome that affect communication? 
The second one is on assessment, best practices. And then the third one's on intervention. And these are all free on the website. And professionals can take these courses, take, watch the videos. At the end of the video, they can get a link then to take a quiz, a short quiz, so they can earn a certificate, which gives them one professional development hour. So somebody could take all three courses for no, no charge, get earn three professional development hours. And then once you've taken and passed all three quizzes, you'll get an invitation to join our moderated forum. So it's also free. We have a panel of experts in, in communication and education and Rett syndrome who are waiting to help teachers, therapists, you know, speech therapists, OTs, assistive tech people who um, want more specific information, say, on their particular child or student. And they can join the forum now that they have this basic information and they have access to these um, 10 uh, U.S. Uh, web uh, experts who can really help them with everything from low tech to high tech to literacy, reading, everything. That is so exciting. I mean, we're all looking for some great free CEUs as SLPs. So we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. I'll have you send me the links. Some of them I see you included on our, um, in your, with your bio. Um, so I'm really excited to share all those amazing resources with everyone. Um, Teresa, what's next for you? You're so active in the red <laughs> community. You're doing such amazing things. Like what's next in the world um, of Rett syndrome with you? Well, we have a goal um, that we want every speech pathologist in the in the U.S. So our focus is the U.S. But I also work closely with my colleagues. Um, like I have a colleague in in the U.K. She works for Ret U.K. And um, so we collaborate. You know, so really we want to start here, but we we want to impact every individual with Ret syndrome across the world. But my goal is that every speech language pathologists in the US will know what Rett syndrome is because they will hear that word during their graduate training program because I never heard it. And um, so we are making these guidelines available to um, US-based SLP graduate programs and giving them the information, telling them about those webinars and offering this as a particular, say it could be a module in a graduate class on AAC. And um, we've been really excited. We've been adopted by several universities already. And um, our, so this is really a passion for me so that a student can get out of school, start uh, practicing. And if they encounter someone with Rett syndrome, I don't expect them to remember everything, but they'll say, hey, wait a minute. I heard about Rett syndrome. I know where to go now for information. Um, and the other thing about the guidelines is that they're written in a way so that the principles that we talk about are applicable to so many other individuals with complex communication disorders. So someone can take this information and apply it um, to someone with Down syndrome, someone with autism, someone with uh, Angelman syndrome, so any any other um, uh, challenge to uh, communication that someone has a challenge to communication or a complex communication disorder. 
so much of what we write about how to get started, how to advance, how to move from, you know, how do you choose, do you choose a small vocabulary? Do you choose a robust vocabulary? Uh, these are things that are just best practice for AAC across so many different diagnostic groups. So we're hoping to get these um, guidelines into, um, to help other, other, say, low incidence disorders as well. Yeah, and I think you're exactly right. How can we start with pre-service SLPs with the training that they get? Um, because I think, unfortunately, it's just so hard for students getting out of graduate school. Some don't even have courses in AAC, so they don't right. have any, you know, learning around the topic. And it's such a big topic that's so necessary in, you know, 2023 to have some understanding of because so many students are benefiting from AAC and using it for communication. Um, so I think that's a really admirable goal to really start with pre-service SLPs because we know that if we if we really get to clinicians before they're out in the world and we're shaping their minds on how to be the best possible speech language pathologist they can be, um, just knowing about Rett syndrome and other, you know, low incidence um, disabilities, I think is such a good launching off point. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to share this episode and excited for this resource to be available for people. And um, really excited that you were able to come on today, Teresa, and talk all about the work that you do. It's so amazing. And I'm super excited to share it out with everyone. Um, this is such an important topic and I feel like low incidence disabilities feel very overwhelming and daunting for many parents and clinicians and educators. And so the more information we have, the more power we have to make the right decisions and to really help individuals th to the best of our abilities. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing all your wisdom. I'm so happy to be here. Um, I really wanna thank you. I did wanna mention one more thing. Um, yeah, I'm going to ask okay. you about it. I'm going to ask yeah. you about it. Okay. Right. Before we, before we go, Teresa, you have a podcast. So tell me all about your podcast. Yes, I do. And I love podcasts and uh, yours is wonderful. So, so grateful to be on it. But, um, in 2022, I launched a podcast for parents because as a parent of a, uh, a child with a disability, it can be very lonely. You can feel like you're the only one in your family or your circle or your community uh, who's really experienced this these kinds of challenges. And um, so I developed a podcast, it's called Safe Harbor, a podcast for parents of children with disabilities. And though I talk a little bit about my daughter on there, um, and I have had a couple of parents of children with Rett syndrome on there. It's not just for parents of children with Rett syndrome. I've had parent of a child with autism, someone parent of a child with Down syndrome on there, and, you know, hope to have lots of other um, areas represented. But what we talk about are things that we share in common, um, our lives and our challenges. But we also talk about what, what really, um, has been wonderful about this. You know, and you look back and say, wow, how can that be wonderful? But um, you look as a parent um, and you see how your life has been changed and how in so many ways it has been enhanced. There are so many lessons that you have learned um, that um, have made your life richer, made, maybe perhaps made you look at the world in a, a little bit differently. Um, maybe affects your values. Um, so I look at it as um, something I would never change. And um, 
uh, is something that has made me a better person. And I've learned a lot from my daughter who cannot talk. Yeah. And I feel like it's sometimes some of the most challenging experiences we have in this life are the ones that promote the most growth and evolution in us. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's always nice when you can kind of be grateful for the process and even the hard times, um, you can kind of find the silver lining of how much growth um, and how much, you know, inspiration value can add to your life um, if that's the way you kind of choose to look at it. So I'm super excited to share your podcast and sounds like an amazing resource for families. Um, like you said, it's so lonely, I think, especially initially with the diagnosis. Um, there's a, a grieving period that often takes place where you're trying to figure out like, what am I going to do and what is this going to look like? And, you know, that whole uh, process can be really hard, especially if you're doing it alone. So um, that's the nice thing about technology is we all can kind of share our stories and, you know, blast them out onto the internet. So they're accessible to all. Um, so, you know, 15 years ago, a parent who was just diagnosed with a child with Rett syndrome would have felt so lonely. And now they can find your podcast and all of the amazing resources that the Rett, um, that the Rett syndrome foundation has and all of those things. So we're really lucky to be in the time that we're in right now. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. So again, thanks for the work that you do and putting all this information out there. It's so valuable for people. Thank you so much, Teresa. It was so great having you on today. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Oh, my pleasure. For Talking With Tech, I'm Rachel Madel, joined by Teresa Bartolotta. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.